0: Hi there everyone, welcome to Taiwan Talk. I'm your host, Alex Lewis. Another month of September has come and gone, which is a good time for us to look back at some of the important events from September in years past. This week we're joined by Taipei Times features reporter Han Sheng to talk about his weekly column Taiwan in Time. Taiwan in Time is a column about Taiwan's history that is published every Sunday and it spotlights important or interesting events around the nation that have anniversaries that week. Let's start with the first week of September with the article titled The Former President's Reversal. Han writes about how Li Denghui adhered to KMT's pro-unification, one-China stance during much of his political career, but how he veered off and eventually broke off from the party in the early 2000s.
1: This one was basically like just a chronology of Li Denghui, former President Li Denghui's change in stance, because when he first started as a politician, there was only the KMT. So Uh, He joined that, and he followed their, you know, pro-unification, one-China rules, and then, but once he solidified his power, he actually started to push for, like, you know, like, more Taiwanization, more Native, Um, and then he became, like, outright, like, independence uh, advocate. And the anchor of the article is the 2003 March on September 6th, where he was, like, the main, like, leader of the march that was to rename the country from Republic of China to Taiwan.
0: So he kind of like led that revolution of the name of the country.
1: Yeah, yeah, he did. He did. He was like the main speaker and that stuff. And Yeah, I I found that really interesting because like how, you know, it takes some courage to do that and like break party lines and push your own agenda, and then he finally got kicked out of the KMT because of that. Mm. Yeah, and then he was free to pursue his own agenda. I mean, he's a controversial figure, because, like, you know, some people accuse him of, like, being Japanese, and he said that he, he had a Japanese name. He grew up during the period where the Japanese were really pushing for everybody to identify as Japanese. But it seems that he also has Taiwan independence in Taiwan as a country, like, in a strong interests as well.
0: Yes. Yeah, I can see how he's a controversial, uh, polarizing figure, because, yeah, I guess he grew up in Japanese colonial times, and then he worked in the KMT government, and then afterwards he's, you know, he's straight away from the KMT, so it's really hard to, I guess, define the guy.
1: Yeah, 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 it is. And so I just tried to, like, use this one one aspect of him, like, we don't want to talk about, like, all the... Different controversies, and because there's too much to talk about, so I just focused on his stance on the definition of Taiwan and like its status.
0: So, what was the most interesting takeaway uh, for you from writing this article?
1: It was just uh, because I've been kind of, I kind of knew his stance and everything, but it was kind of looking at this like putting everything in one place. And looking at it in like, it was a progression. It was like a clear progression. You know, like before he consolidated, because he had to fight for power in the KMT because he was the first uh, Taiwan-born chairman. So a lot of people were opposed to him, and he had to do a lot of political maneuvering to get to power. So before he did that, he was really like following the party line. Once he got power though like everything changed. So, uh, that was more abrupt than I think I expected it to be.
0: Mm. Yeah, well I mean the 2003 march that came after uh the KMT lost uh, lost power, right?
1: Yeah, 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 that did.
0: Okay, so it kind of like takes the onus off of him, right? Like, you know, it's
1: Right, right. And um, by that time he was not happy that you know, like once he stepped down, they kind of like were reverting to their own old policies and uh, and he wanted them he hoped that they would continue with his ideals but there were too many uh KMT supporters that you know just didn't agree with him so so the Taiwan Solidarity Union was actually um comprised of uh the people in the KMT who followed him actually and they all left and formed that and um so there there, there was like Yeah, I think there was more than more going on than I had really looked at before because I don't really follow this kind of politics that much. Like mostly it's history, but then history is politics, and this is like more of a um, recent.
0: Yeah, this was a pretty recent uh, article. If you look at all your other ones that you wrote, it's at least you know uh, decades or you know hundreds of years, even thousands of years back
1: so i'm used to looking at like really old stuff where i can just you know look at old documents and you know these people aren't around anymore and, but then like yeah the, this is still alive i had to refer to a lot of actual like taipei times articles and, like uh, so that that was that was a different
0: exercise let's talk about the next one the closure of the taiwan strait um sure Taiwan and the United States prevented Chinese ships from traversing the Taiwan Strait for 30 years, but this practice came to an end as the country's international clout plummeted. Uh, what did this uh, article touch upon?
1: Uh, this one was uh, about the, the, yeah, the blockage of the Taiwan Strait. So they uh, pretty much since, um, even when the Civil War was going on, the KMT tried to block all the ports and blocked the entire coast of China, but, like, um, obviously the Communists took Shanghai, they took all the significant ports, so by the time they retreated to China, they, but they still had Jingmen and Mazu, so they were actually able to block the Taiwan Strait, and um, and Chinese ships actually had to go around Taiwan to, from, to get from, like, the southern China to north China, which was really interesting. They had to go through the Philippines and then like around the east of Taiwan, and it would take, it took forever. Um, so, yeah, and I, I had no idea that Taiwan actually had that clout, but given that they had U.S. support, it's not that surprising, I guess. And uh, what's interesting about this is now China can do whatever it wants but actually back that's then, an
0: understatement China kind of dictates what goes on in the south china much, sea yeah that.
1: but back then they it actually worked like they actually did not sail through the china, uh, taiwan strait until like 1979 And but and by that time you know like the us had already broken ties with taiwan and uh although it was still like you know they still had the the the, the relations act and stuff like that but when the, China just forced the ship through, basically. And, you know, the, Taiwan couldn't do anything about it at that point. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, like the ship was, uh, wasn't just a regular ship. It had, uh, like, anti-aircraft and stuff. Uh, yeah,
1: they were defenses. prepared. They actually gave, like, trained all the... The entire crew was military trained. And uh, they were ready for confrontation. But Taiwan did send, like... A, Couple warships and planes to check out the situation, and nah, and they were pretty bold. They actually uh, planned the whole thing, so they they sailed during broad daylight, so everybody could see the five star flag um, on the on the ship. Mm, I see. Still, nothing happened. So that's uh, you know that 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 was a testimony to you know the sharp decline in Taiwan's, um Clout, yeah. Clout, yeah. And here we are. And here we are, yeah.
0: Yeah, things have changed a little <laughs> just bit. It's
1: getting worse. Yeah. Yeah so, hmm. um, yeah, so that's that's the nutshell of this. Oh, and also what was interesting was, like, how the ROC, like, the Taiwan Navy was behaving. Like, it was just seizing ships left and right and sinking them and detaining the people. And, like, they they actually, like, took the Soviet ship. And even try to, like, get them to, you know, in, engage in, like, anti-communist activities, which was really wow. interesting, because they, they also sank a b- bunch of British ships, and, like, they would just attack anybody who tried to go through. And, I mean, apparently was, they couldn't catch everybody.
0: Of course, but, uh, yeah, but, but it seemed but, like they were super territorial.
1: Yeah, but the fact that they were able to do that. Yeah. Uh, like it really, you really can't imagine like that. Like with you know Taiwan's, like with the current state uh, of affairs well, now, mm-hmm. and the amount of stuff that they actually could get away with.
0: They could get away with, but also, I mean, just uh, the type of aggressiveness and, um, I guess, militaristic uh, actions that they, that they actually did take.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think like we we often like underestimate the. You know the military strength and like things that were going on, like in the early early part of like KMT rule, like they were still like actively fighting with China. There were like air battles and um, and then
0: all this stuff going on. The next article we'll take a look at is titled "Abandoned by the Rising Sun." Han reports on how, for several decades after World War II, Japan refused to compensate Taiwanese soldiers who helped in the war effort.
1: So Taiwan was part of Japan during the entire World War II, right? So obviously the Taiwanese would be fighting for the Japanese. And there were quite a few Taiwanese. Like the statistics show that over like 200,000 Taiwanese served in the army in different capacities. I think most of them were uh, auxiliary forces. They weren't actual soldiers because Japanese didn't actually start drafting Taiwanese until the tail end of the war but they would send them as like agricultural support troops or like transport and they were all over the place like the the, the guy I highlighted in the article actually was sent to Papua New Guinea to farm and to produce like food for the Japanese uh, soldiers stationed there when that uh, part of the world was under Japanese occupation and but um, at the end of the war um, all these people lost um, japanese citizenship and then japan didn't want to take responsibility anymore towards you know the taiwanese that went to war or the ones who died or the ones who were severely injured like this guy i wrote about he he like lost an arm he, he lost an eye and he lost hearing in his right ear and he got nothing for it also there was the uh treaty of taipei signed that stipulated that um, all kind of like war reparations had to be government-to-government, like individuals could not sue the government of Japan. And then Chiang Kai-shek made that announcement that, you know, he wasn't going to seek any war reparations from Japan, so...
0: There's nothing these people could do.
1: Yeah, until the, the, the treaty
0: ended So this is still like a raw issue for some people on the island and Japanese colonialism is highlighted in the media now and again, like the story about the Japanese activist that kicked uh, the comfort woman statue, which is a brutal part of history in its own right, you know, but, um, yeah. So like, that's still like a raw issue for some people.
1: Yeah, it is. It is. And it's the fact that, you know, they're still not taking responsibility for all of the stuff that happened and it's still ongoing today and, um, and one thing is like we we look a lot we look at the comfort women a lot and which which is a very important issue in its own right but like there were also these soldiers and they they, they were also uh, neglected and the Japanese like outright refused to compensate them for their injuries and looking at the documents like a lot of them willingly fought for the Japanese because you know the education back then they were like they had to go to these like indoctrination. Um, classes every week where they told them like you know you have to give your life for the Japanese so like um, so a lot of them volunteered to go but there they, sh- there were a lot who were also forced to go and the the Japanese just kind of treated it as you know, it wasn't their business yeah
0: especially yeah. after they lost citizenship right it's just yeah like, yeah yeah wash your hands of that whole situation
1: right so it's kind of as a pattern of like you know how they have been acting the Comfort Women issue today, Mm -hmm. which there was a protest um, last month um, in front of the Japanese embassy or a representative office. Um,
0: Yeah. Yeah. So
1: it's it's still going on. Mm -hmm. It's kind of just digging deeper back into into the issue.
0: The last article that you wrote was the Admiral's Secret Plan. And the excerpt for this says "While wow, Shilang. How do you say his name?
1: Uh, Shilang.
0: Okay. So, while Shilang is known for persuading the Qing dynasty emperor to incorporate Taiwan into the empire, reports show that he tried to hand Taiwan to its former Dutch colonizers as a bargaining chip to secure trade rights. So, tell me about this. So, this happened in like, the 1600s. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, this one was really hard to write because um, it was so convoluted. Like, he, he had this grand master plan, like get rich plan, like Game of Thrones kind of thing. Yeah, really. And trying to like, he he was playing all sides. He was convincing the emperor to, you know, annex Taiwan. uh, Okay, so a little bit of background. Um, Back then, Taiwan was nominally ruled by, you know, like Zhen Chenggong and his empire. Uh, he, he, He wanted to use it as a base to, you know, like overthrow the Qing. Um, of course, they didn't rule the entire Taiwan, but they had an empire there, uh, uh, well, more like a kingdom. And then, so, they'd actually survived for several generations, So this guy was like his grandson. And so, Shi Lang actually led the forces to Taiwan and destroyed the kingdom. and then And then there was the question of what to do with Taiwan. So that became a huge debate in the Qing court, and uh, some people were like, "You know, that's it's not worth our resources, and let's just leave it be." Or one guy was even like, "Oh, why don't we invite the Dutch back, and so they could govern it for us, and then we could just collect like tribute from them, right?" Mm-hmm. And then, but Shulang was actually he's known for like really trying to persuade the emperor that, you know, like, Taiwan has a lot of fertile land, like, it's really strategic, and we should hold on to it, and, like, things like that. But, on the other hand, he was dealing with the Dutch and the British, and, like, trying to get them to, because, yeah, this is really complicated. Basically, he, he's from Fujian province, he was, like, the admiral of Fujian province, so um, he wanted established kind of like a mon- monopoly on trade there. Mm-hmm. So he was trying to uh, negotiate with the people of the British East India Company and the Dutch East India Company yeah. and trying to get them to, you know, establish trade offices in Fujian. And part of uh how this all relates to Taiwan is uh, um he actually w- seemed to be willing to uh like allow the Dutch to return to Taiwan and take back Taiwan and in exchange for, you know, getting a monopoly on trade um, through, like, Fujian province, which is right opposite from Taiwan, so... Which really contradicted what he was telling, telling the emperor.
0: Yeah, so basically, and, I mean, like, Long just came off as a huge villain this whole pretty time. Pretty much.
1: Pretty much, yeah. Like totally, yeah. just
0: operating out of self-interest and right. uh, trying to play both, trying to play all sides. Uh, yeah, just yeah, his yeah. benefit. Yeah, um, yeah and you did say Game of Thrones villain, right? He was like, it's basically just trying to play all sides of the political situation, and after even after that failed, right? He he still took uh, the selfish way out.
1: Yeah, he did. He did. And the interesting thing is, like this, this, like this, all of this was like gathered from. Um, a testimony from, like, the, the Dutch East India Company.
0: Yeah. Oh, by the way, I wanted to ask you, how hard was it to to research something this far uh, back in history? You know, was, This was from the 1600s, right? Were there a lot of texts about this and everything, or was it just kind of, uh, like, from just one account?
1: Well, the, the Dutch East India Company kept really complete records of, like, all the conversations and everything. Um, oh, nice. He mostly went off of like Dutch and Qing records, so uh, so that it's uh, based on his research on those historic records. So I didn't have to go and dig into it because it was all in Dutch and classical Chinese, which I cannot read.
0: So, yeah, so yeah, good thing I guess, right? <laughs> yep. Yeah, and the thing that really stood out to me was uh, this part that said that while wow, sure. Argued that Taiwan had endless stretches of fertile land where Chinese intermix with local savages, right? And this is like in in the article, right? They, mm-hmm. you know, he uses the word local savages, yeah. and the most officials did not think much of Taiwan, calling it a speck of dirt on the outer seas with naked, tattooed savages, not worthy of spending their resources on. You know, so just like that, that kind of language. You, uh, for me, I I only really saw uh, when it came from like Western colonizers, you know, and I didn't really see that. From Asia until until I read this portion, I, it's obviously ignorance on my part. But I just thought that to be you know illuminating for me.
1: Right, right. Basically, the, yeah. Actually, the word uh, "savages" they use fun which kind of like yeah, kind of alludes to like wild people or savage. savages or barbarians or something like that. Right. They they actually use that word for like westerners sometimes too, like the 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 western barbarians. So and. Anybody who wasn't Chinese, basically, was a savage. Um, so that kind of included the, the aboriginals. And um, so basically the, the Chinese settlers on Taiwan were, you know, the civilized people and everybody else was a savage. And, well, they even considered, you know, like Europeans and like Americans as savages as well. So it was, it was a common term that was used in the early days Mm, by see. by, like Chinese, so it was like a kind of like a Chinese uh, centricism. And, I mean, even th- even when the Europeans were carving up China, they still called them savages or barbarians. So uh, 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 yeah, so it was a pretty common term back then.
0: Okay, interesting. So it just yeah. seems that a barbarian is anybody that who is not like you.
1: Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Even since since ancient China, that, that was kind of like China's stance towards the people around them, with you know them in the center. And everybody else, everybody else was a barbarian. Yeah, that part also like highlighted how much, how little they knew about Taiwan. Like yeah. a speck of dirt on the outer seas. Um, you know, like they they didn't know how strategic Taiwan was, and like the location and like how how, how, how fertile the land is. They're like, oh, it's useless. <laughs> and, uh, the funny thing was. Um, they, it was not until the French tried to take Taiwan in the late 1800s that they were like, oh, this, this island is actually important. And they tried to govern it, and then they lost it to Japan like 10 years later. ¶¶
0: Thank you to Han for coming on Taiwan Talk to talk about his articles. You can find his articles in the Taipei Times uh, every Sunday, or you can find them online on the Taipei Times website and just search for Taiwan in Time. And that's it for this week's Taiwan Talk. I'm your host, Alex Lewis.